every single marketer and every single brand should be attempting to earn a disproportionate share of conversation. If you work for an organization where they say, bring us a chart that goes up and to the right, you have a challenge. Half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. The trouble is, I don't know which half. I am here to inspire you, to excite you, to motivate you, to transform you, to energize you. Hello and welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. This is Ben Wilson, executive producer of Demand Gen Visionaries, and today's episode features an interview with Corinne Sklar, CMO of IBM IX and worldwide marketing leader of customer experience for IBM. In this interview, Corinne talks about growth with IBM, how she thinks about Demand Gen, and her best tips for what to do to become a Demand Gen leader. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com. If you are a B2B marketer who has always dreamed of knowing when a qualified prospect is on your site and being able to talk to them instantly, now you can. Learn more at Qualified.com. So please enjoy this interview between Corinne Sklar and your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios. And today, my good friend coming on the podcast, Corinne, what's up? Here I am working from home like everyone else. Indeed. Well, today we're going to do some real serious demand gen work because we're going to be talking about all of the secrets that got you to where you are today. We're going to go deep on some real marketing insights here. Let's get into it. How did you get started in demand gen? What was the first demand gen kind of function that you were working on? It's funny because as a name in demand gen is really at the core of what B2B marketers have always been doing. Uh, I think, you know, with the onset of technology and modern day marketing, it's around driving to business metrics and aligning with the sellers. So even though the name, let's say demand gen, and now maybe you could say it's called growth marketing came about, it's really been at the core of my DNA from the beginning of my career as specifically looking at, yes, you've got to build brand, but what are we doing to support our sellers in the field to generate business. So for me, it's really been from day one. So our first segment here is called the trust tree. With the knowledge you've been given, you are now on the inside of what I like to call the circle of trust. What, I thought we were in the trust tree in the nest, are we not? So this is where we can all feel honest and trusted. We can share our deepest, darkest demand gen secrets. As CMO, obviously, demand gen falls under you. I'm curious, like, what is your demand gen strategy? What's your structure? How do you look at this? Well, I think you got to look at it depending on the business that you're in. So over the years, whether it was the beginning of my career or building up Blue Wolf, which is Salesforce's largest services partner to you know where I'm at IBM, it really depends around how you construct an overarching marketing organization. Uh, for me specifically, you know, I'm going to kind of blend both the last 15 years as well as kind of a current look at the way IBM is structured around that, which is kind of unique, Ian, because IBM is one of the largest businesses in the world, but also one of the largest marketing teams. So it's not necessarily fair to always use IBM as an example because the scale and the scope of the way we structure marketing and IBM might not be super applicable to everyone. So I'll blend the two of them. When I look at demand gen in particular and how it's constructed, it really is 
at the core of every strategy because I believe that when you are doing brand marketing, you are also doing demand gen. And when you're doing demand gen, you're also doing brand marketing. And I'm not saying that those are the only two functions in marketing, but ultimately they really do support each other. And so yes, there might be tactics that you do that are based purely on awareness, but the reality is awareness is demand gen and vice versa. So I think particular of how I've structured it over the years, I'm a big believer in number one, the use of technology. So from you know, very early on working with tools like Salesforce, understanding how a seller actually uses their CRM. In many cases, for many years, it was, you know, Salesforce CRM and their core sales product. But that's a really great starting point and making sure my marketers really understand that connection into sales operation and that we're really there at a seat at the table. So a lot of the times when I was looking at how do you not just build demand gen teams, but align with sales, it always started with, well, what was your role in the setup of CRM and how is that constructed? And it's really important that a demand gen team and marketers really understand how their sellers use their core CRM product, because that is number one, how you're going to provide that insights, especially around your demand gen tactics through that platform to really drive alignment and conversation with your sellers. And so that was always kind of a starting point. You know, we have over the years, you know, some of the the core teams or departments, or you could call them channels, everything from events, field marketing, paid media, digital, digital and web. And then I'm going to also include sales enablement as part of that demand gen team. So that's kind of the four main structures that we always really set up as part of a core demand gen team. And taking a step back here, for those of our listeners who don't know, what is IBM IX? So IBM IX is the digital services business that sits under IBM services, the world's largest consulting business. So IBM IX really is focused on customer experience and experience design. So anything that has to do with something a customer or an employee touches that impacts that customer experience, that's the work we do. So we own a lot of the work around Salesforce, around Adobe, our partnership with Apple and Samsung, as well as some other partners like SAP on the C4 side. So it's really about services, developing solutions for our clients to engage their employees that impact their customer experience. And who are the types of customers and personas that you're working with? Specifically for IX, but also on customer experience, it really is broad. So number one, we tend to target Fortune 1000. However, IBM, again, is very large. We you know, will go down to that mid-market and commercial space as well. But purely from an IX perspective, we are targeting large enterprise. And our personas tend to be everything that cuts across customer experience, which is a big topic. Who owns customer experience today? Is it the CMO? Is it the CEO? CDO? Is it the head of sales? So we really go across a lot of those business personas as well as IT because IT has played a major role and it continues to play a major role around these initiatives around customer experience as data and architecture become more front and center. Yeah, it's a really interesting point because 
when you are selling and evangelizing something that is new, like customer experience really is a new kind of generation, I guess you could say, of people who put their customer at the center of the interaction that are trying to figure out all these different touch points. You're marketing to different sorts of people. It's it's interesting to note that a company that's been around for as long as IBM is still trying to figure those things out. And I think a lot of people might lose their way setting up their demand gen organization or their marketing organization over time to just do how they had always done it. Let's get to the playbook. This is what's great about sports. This is what the greatest thing about sports is. You play to win the game. Hello? You play to win the game. The playbook is where you get to open up your playbook and talk about the tactics that help you win. So, Corinne, you got three tactics that you pay for that are the highest yield. These are uncuttable, things you would never cut no matter what. What are the three uncuttable items for you? Mm, Good question, Ian. So I would focus on three areas and we can dive deeper into those. Number one, it's not necessarily something you pay for with dollars. You do in regards to headcount, but you definitely pay for it in resource and time. And number one, that is around executive alignment and sales enablement. In B2B demand gen marketing, we are selling through a channel. And sometimes you're selling through multiple channels. But in particular, in B2B, you are selling through a channel and that channel is your salespeople. And ultimately, for me, the one area I would never cut is the focus and intense resource amount that it takes to really executive align and work with salespeople in the field around your programs. Now, executive alignment is a particular one that I'm very, I take very seriously. And what that means is, number one, it really is at the culture of the company, understanding the role that marketing plays as an integral part of the entire demand funnel. So when we look at everything from awareness to close, marketing has a role to play in that funnel. And we've been talking about that for years, but really understanding that it is a partnership and having executives and CEOs in particular that really understand the need to provide autonomy and support at the highest level of the CMO into the field, even at that you know, VP of sales or CRO level is really important that we need to be thinking the company needs to be thought of as a marketing and sales driven organization, not just a sales driven organization. Once you have that cover, then it comes down to how do you really align with sales around demand gen and around plays? And it's always what I I spend a lot of my time talking about this idea that I want my sellers to go sell whatever they can sell. At the end of the day, you own your account, you sell what you can sell. But here are three plays that our organization, our executive business, we feel that we must drive into the organization and we need your help to do that. So it's not about trying to do everything in marketing, but it's about focus and it's about driving that focus. And there's a lot of science, I believe, and art to really designing your sales plays and your programs around things that are generating revenue today. So what are we doing to put gas and dollars and demand gen budget on things that our sellers are selling today that actually drive revenue and pipeline that we'll see within quarter? But I also am a very strong believer, and I have a lot of stories about the need, especially in marketing, to be 
laying foundation for future offerings, products, or services that we must begin to market sooner than later if we want our sellers and we want to build new revenue streams within, let's say, two to three years. So it's important that you balance and that you have executive leadership alignment to balance that. Because if you're only selling and marketing into today, you're not really building that next wave of pipeline and revenue stream that's going to come as your business has to evolve and react to new customer demand. So a little bit of a, a long way to say number one thing I would not cut is really that focus on, you know, picking those programs and, and aligning and having executive sponsorship around those campaigns and plays that you're running in the field. So that's number one. And where we are with COVID is events. You can hear from tons of marketers, events, is it old school? You know, should we be spending this much of on, on events? And I would say 100% yes. Our sellers are looking for any opportunity to build intimacy with their customers. And if we can generate a face-to-face -face or even now a virtual engagement through different types of virtual events, that shows a lot more commitment than somebody just downloading a piece of content or clicking on an ad. And so I still am a very strong believer in the role that events play, and I would never take events budget out of my programming. And instead, we are getting even more creative during COVID around the types of events that our sellers need because they're not able to go, you know, get on, jump on site with a customer today. The third one I would say is absolutely that breakout content. I'm a big believer in content marketing. Um, I would say I was very early on and really experimenting with personalized ABM which we can talk about. But when it comes to content marketing, I'm also a big believer in you've got to do content that doesn't check the box, that doesn't necessarily, the term I always use is me too marketing. You see somebody else doing something in content and so you're like, oh, that sounds like great. I'll just you know, repurpose that for our own brand. No, content marketing has to stand out. It either has to be super provocative it has to be super detailed in regards to a problem that somebody we know needs to be solved and it really needs to stand out. And so for me, in the highest levels, it's sales enablement, events, and really strong content marketing all aligned through the channel of our salespeople. That's super interesting that, that you put sales enablement number one. And it's a pretty key insight for someone who had, I mean, I, you could probably say one of the best relationship with your sales organizations. And it's such an obvious example of sales is marketing's customer as well. I'm curious, how did you structure and think about sales enablement as you were building? Because I think, as you mentioned with like headcount and things like that, did you just have a dedicated team that did that? Some sales organizations might just want to do that on their own. How did you think about it? It fluxed over time, depending on the scale and the focus. Um, and of course, inside of IBM, it's also very different. But I would say a general way that I approach it is it definitely needs to be cross-department. So for instance, for many years, I owned the Inside Sales or BDR, DDR program. That offers a lot of alignment already with sales by having that live in marketing. And, you know, we went back and forth of having parts of it live in sales and parts of it live in marketing. So that's probably a whole other conversation. But overall, I think it is a cross department type of initiative. So for instance, we have 
a group that really owns our orgs, whether it's our Salesforce orgs and really owns the innovation on our tools that's sometimes owned by the COO's office or others, that team is a critical part to have at the table, which um, was structured in its own way. Marketing had its own dedicated product marketing function that really focused on that enablement side. So we did have people who are dedicated to support sales enablement and marketing, but it was really run by that product marketing team and really aligned those relationships really lived in product marketing. And then obviously there's an actual sales operations team. So, you know, there was a bit of a distinction between sales ops and sales enablement. So sales operations whether it's from reporting and data insights, all three of those groups would come together. We would look at the integrated needs that our sellers need, whether it became, it was about tools, whether it was about training, whether it was about comp and compensation, and really develop programs together as a team because all of those things are so important for a marketing organization to know. How are sellers compensated? If you don't know how your sellers are compensated, how can you really align your programs to really focus on those carrots and sticks that your sellers really need to drive your programs? Yeah, and you know, when it comes to the content piece, and this is a good segue to that, because if you make the most killer content in the world and you're having all of your sales teams never send it out because they don't understand why they should or you know what matters or aren't trying to be timely and relevant. Goodness, what a waste, right? They're all already having the conversations, especially when you have, you know, certain named accounts that you're going after. You know, if you have like a B2C product, that's one thing. But if you're talking about you have X number of named accounts and you're already having conversations with those people, boy, that's a great way to position some of that great content or events that you talked about. I think that's the key though is, and I've seen this because I've always been in a unique position, Ian, because of my role of actually implementing for the last almost 20 years, Salesforce into selling teams and marketing automation tools from the early days of my career, working with those platform partners and actually listening to the end users, understanding the needs they have and providing those solutions. And what's critical that comes out of that. And I think it's even more of an imperative today with COVID is the need of sellers to have the insights around marketing's impact and not just insights of impact, but triggers that help them make a decision around where to focus with a customer. That's why when I spoke earlier around those cross-department teams coming together, you really do need your ops team and your tech team to be working in collaboration with marketing so we understand how that insight is going to be served up to a seller. That is, I think, one of the most important things. If your sellers are not digitally enabled and this concept of digital seller, social selling that's been around forever is even more important today because your customer, you're not going to go and ring up your customer and go walk in their office. You're going to be looking for digital clues around what products and services they're interested in, what engagement they're having across your business to be able to tailor outreach to them. And marketing plays a huge role into providing those digital footprints right into the place that sellers work every day. And that should be their CRM or on their mobile device. So I think that's a critical aspect of driving demand gen in a B2B world. Well, it's not just about your seller's 
shilling your content 24 seven, right? And that's another piece of this is like, it's about giving them all the tools that they can have at their disposal to be able to be the trusted advisor. And if you're not doing that, and it's just constant, you know, we, we've all seen the Twitter streams where it's like four times a day or on LinkedIn or Twitter, or whatever, that they're just posting content from your blog, and it gets zero likes every single day, day in and day out. It's like, nobody wants to hear from that person and empowering those sellers to be the trusted advisor to actually have insights and information is obviously a lot on that individual seller, but it's also on you as a marketing team to be able to tee them up with that stuff. I think that's it. And, you know, especially for big accounts or sellers and selling teams, actually selling teams who are going after big accounts. It's not just about the contacts you already know. Yes, it's about deepening that relationship, let's say with a CIO or whoever you have that relationship with, you know, Mr. or Mrs. Seller or selling team. But it's also about marketing's role around activating and engaging new contacts within an account that might be an influencer for a decision maker and really providing that visibility uh, to a selling team around you know, how marketing can really provide that insights and trigger new conversations that they might not be having already. Let's use an example from your background. I know the story well, but for our listeners who don't, many years ago, you had the light bulb good idea to create this thing called Stata Salesforce. So I'm curious, like, can you share that story and then also kind of like weave in how you used that anchor piece of content to create things like sales enablement and events and all the stuff that you're talking about? Absolutely. So the genesis and, you know, Ian, jump in whenever you want, but the genesis was really at the beginning of, of Salesforce and its growth. And, you know, Blue Wolf really started with Salesforce from really the beginning, very early on as Salesforce is going out and touting on-demand and SaaS, which later became cloud, and the role that we had in regards to implementing and providing services around the Salesforce platform. And what we thought about later on is we kept hearing from our customers that, you know, for instance, they would want to have conversations just with Blue Wolf without Salesforce on the call, for instance, right? And of course, you know, their customers are going to want to hear two sides of of the story. But ultimately, what we started hearing from those customers was like, this is all well and good, but what are the gotchas? I'm putting my career on the line for this investment. I really need somebody to tell me where things are hidden or what do I really need to do with no one else on the phone call to be successful with this implementation because this is this is what I'm hanging my career on. And so what we started to realize was there was a real need and desire to have a point of view in the ecosystem around Salesforce based on really just our own third-party advice around how the best companies do Salesforce. What are the things that we see when companies do it right? It excels. Over and over again, with thousands and thousands of projects, we consistently would see when there were basic things that sometimes our clients would do that we knew wouldn't set them up for success. And so what we said was, why don't we look at driving a point of view in the ecosystem that allows us end-to-end across every cloud of Salesforce to say, here's what we see as trends, here's how the best companies use Salesforce, and do it every year and benchmark it and provide that as a free offering to our customers 
but also prospects around the world. And that's what it became known as, really the de facto trends around how the best companies use Salesforce. So we're really proud about it. And one of the things that I thought was so fascinating about this case study was that you built it in a way that you spent a lot of work on it in the beginning and then could piece that out over time each year. And it became something that was serialized. So every year you'd put a ton of research into this, like a ton with your team. And then now, you know, it's been going for 10 years. And I think that it's just such a smart way to think about content. That's like, oh, you mean the thing that we have to put a bunch of work into? And then at the end of it, we have this really valuable asset that our salespeople can share, that we can put little insights out about, that we can create events around this, that you're creating a mini brand. And that I just think is so smart. And it's demand gen done right, because people actually want to see this every year. It's critical to their job. It's a great point. I mean, I could talk about how that evolved over the last decade, but exactly. We we use the term here, and I think it's in one of your other podcasts, Ian, this concept plucking the chicken. And the idea was you build a campaign and a brand around this asset. And like you said, you invest. It has to be quality. And it also can't just be a mouthpiece. It has to have true insights that cut through And I think that was a lot of fear when we first announced this report, but I also think it's what drove a lot of the engagement around the report because we went out there saying things that might not necessarily in the early days was very popular with Salesforce. But our clients, when they read it, they said, I see myself in this. I actually, we had had so many customers respond in the first few years saying, this is exactly the issue I've been having. Thank you for bringing it to life. And so that doesn't come by just taking a cursory look at content. It's around really diving deep and aligning with the field. We really partnered with the experts in our business to develop that. And to your point, everything gets branded around the state of Salesforce. So for instance, of course, IBM and Blue Wolf sponsor Dreamforce at its highest level. We have every year, Dreamforce has been around. We've been the largest and highest sponsor every year. And we run a session every year at Dreamforce, as well as the world tours called the State of Salesforce. And every year it is our most popular session because people know that it's happening year on year. We provide data, we provide trends, and it has become that de facto brand that really drives engagement year over year. People might go to it one year, they're going to come again the next year. Well, and it's a really interesting case study too in like how to build a website to do what you want. Because I think that one of the things that's so fascinating, I love Blue Wolf's website. I've always been a fan of it. I think it's really well done. But the third block on the website is State of Salesforce 2020, right? Like that is how front and center a piece of content can be. That it's like practically before you're asking them to buy, you're like, hey, we create this thing. And I'm curious, how important was the website? How important was like making that front and center over the years? I mean, it was always critical because we saw huge inbound digital conversion on the report. Obviously, we do a lot through email and social to drive traffic for conversion. So it was very clear it was already getting traffic. So if it's getting traffic, why not stick it front and center as a conversion point? Every website is looking for a way to convert customers, right? Or prospects so you can get their insights, right? So it was a no-brainer to add it there. I think the other big area of evolution in the report really came back from feedback 
from our sellers around wanting to provide a personalized report to their customers. So when we look at state of Salesforce today in our business, it is in many cases the first conversation we have with the new customer as well as an ongoing conversation and engagement with existing customers. What I mean by that is if somebody reaches out to us or we generate some interest around our business and it has to do with Salesforce, the very first thing that we ask that team before we even go meet them virtually or on site is to fill out the survey so we can benchmark them before we get into a conversation around if they're already using Salesforce, how we can improve that. Right. So it becomes really a critical part of the sales motion, which I think if you can build content in a B2B environment that actually becomes part of your sales motion, that's when you really start to change and align sales and marketing behavior. And you're providing value up front, kind of like over and over and over again when you're allowing them to see those benchmarks. Exactly. And because we report it, we do the report every year, it is a constant thing we can use when we have our QBRs, our quarterly reviews with clients, to be able to use that. And clients are always like, hey, what's new? What's new? What do I, what's coming? What are the trends? What are you seeing? So it really becomes an engine for conversation that we put blood, sweat, and cheers to develop that. But from a marketing perspective, then we get to leverage it all year long. And it's such a great reminder that when that person, when they see that come out, you know, they've went through the benchmarking process. They're trying to figure out where they are. They're saying, okay, this isn't for me this year, or this isn't for me next year, whatever it is. But every year when it comes out, they can get re-benchmarked against what is going on in the industry. There's a reason for sales to continue to reach out. There's events that can go into that. There's other things that, that kind of fuel that motion. And I think it's just, it's such a great way to create something enduring that has continual value. And I think if you like juxtapose that with what you see a lot of times, which is this race to the bottom content where it's like, hey, we're going to pay 10 bucks an article to just like write some stuff on our blog that doesn't move the needle for anyone. It's such a huge, huge difference. Totally. And I'd love to hit your point there around quality versus quantity. But let me share a quick story that resonates with what you just said. So about two years ago, I was at, or last year, I guess it was, I was at Can Lions, which is you know big. Everybody knows what the Lions are in marketing. And I was sitting down with the CEO of uh, Essentials, which puts on Can Lions. And he had in his bag the state of Salesforce report. And we sat down, we were sitting somewhere on the Palais having a rosé and we we're sitting there talking. And he asked me, and this was what drove the campaign this year. He said, Corinne, where do I get all the nine other state of Salesforce reports? Because I read this one and now I want to read all the other ones because I really want to dive into all the learns over the last few years as they were going on this massive transformation inside of their organization. And so they were actually a spotlight in this year's state of Salesforce report. But I was just blown away when I had a customer sitting down with me, a CEO saying, I want all the other eight versions. And so this year we actually stood up on our site, a page where you could go and download every year's report because it didn't dawn on us in the first place that maybe 
maybe people would want to go back in time. And so now we're still using that content because a lot of those best practices don't go away after one year. And it allowed us to actually do another turn on a used content that we had produced before. So just another great example of, around how this content can really live on. Okay, let's get into the dust up. Uh-oh. Here comes trouble. You may have heard that there was a dust-up involving yours truly. And now we've got a wild scrum with fights breaking out all over the place. And it is getting really ugly as we've got punches and kicks. This is when you've had a famous dust-up, whether that be with a, a partner, a peer, sales, whoever, some healthy tension. Do you have a famous dust-up for us? I, yes, I do. And my dust-up would be one action, pick up the phone. For me, that is the best advice I was ever given to solve any conflict. Get off email. People are people. In this day and age, we're working remote, but people do not do enough to just call that individual and work it out on the phone. I think that is probably the best advice I've ever received. I have resolved conflicts more by just simply picking up the phone and calling someone than any other tactic I've ever used. And I think that is the, the best advice I can give and I, I live it every day. What about what trends are coming? What do you see on the horizon? Yeah, I mean, this is a big topic with everything shifting in COVID. I think one trend that I know marketers have been talking about quite a bit, but I personally am very front and center in some of the work that I'm doing at the California state level around privacy and trust. I think that what we saw with GDPR is only the beginning of the next, I would say, 10 years, but obviously more even over the next three years as new national, and I'm speaking specifically to the United States right now, but there's going to be more sweeping privacy laws that come into, you know, into our everyday lives that's going to impact how marketers can market, especially as we start to see local states starting to enact their own laws like California. This is going to be a challenge for marketers. And, you know, from an IBM perspective, you know, we're really focused on driving a conversation nationally around a more national law versus having states enact their own privacy laws. Think about how difficult GDPR was for us to implement. Imagine if we had to do that for 50 states. So I think one of the big areas that you're going to see, especially as we drive more around personalization, is the need to really have a very strong strategy in place around data management and trust. And what does that mean in regards to personalization? So that's an area that I'm very focused on right now. I'm excited about, but I do think that's going to be a trend that is going to impact every marketer. And I think the second one is we are going to see more and more automation and more AI-powered marketing and sales experiences come into our regular workflows. And I think it might have been a misnomer back in the early days that when we implemented tools like marketing, quote-unquote, automation, I think that was the beginning. Whether or not that necessarily automated our work as marketers, I'm sure we could have a dialogue around that. But I do think based on some of the solutions that I'm seeing coming to market, 
and the role that IBM is playing, especially in the AI sphere, that we are going to see. And it's going to be the marketers who really understand and partner across IT around their data architecture that is going to be able to take the best advantage of personalization with trust and automation and AI in their marketing organization. So I think those are true two areas that I see as big trends for marketing. Okay, let's get into our quick hits. These are quick questions and quick answers. Speaking of quick answers, let's just say someone is on your website right now that's ready to buy. How quickly can you do it? Well, it'd be faster if you had qualified.com. Hot prospects are on your website right now. Start the sales conversation with qualified.com. We love them. They're the sponsor of this show, and they're the very best. Check them out, qualified.com. Quick hits. Corinne, are you ready? Go. What have you picked up during quarantine that's a either a new habit, good habit, bad habit? Ah, uh, good habit would be cooking from home like everybody else. Bad habit, not enough exercise for sure. What about a hidden talent or passion? Hidden talent and passion. Many people who know me, I'm a huge supporter of the arts. I believe, you know, in arts empowering our culture. And uh, I'm very active on a lot of the local San Francisco art organizations and nonprofits. And, uh, you know, big passion, especially during COVID, as we got our restaurant workers who are struggling, our artists are struggling. And it's so critical that we support them during this time. What is your top destination for a place that you're going to go as soon as, uh, as soon as we can travel again? Ah, uh, great one. So I'm a huge scuba diver and uh, hello to all the divers who listen in, but I'm looking forward to getting on a boat somewhere in the middle of nowhere and getting underwater. Well, Corinne, that's it. That's all we have for today. You know, you really are a demand gen visionary. These are, those are great stories. We'll have to have you back to share more. Any final thoughts? Anything to plug? My last plug would be, it's always about aligning with your sellers. It's about standout content and really understanding those technology tools in your data. You have those three core aspects in your marketing organization and you're driving those you're going to support your business and grow. Awesome. And everybody check out IBM IX if you haven't already. Corinne, thanks for stopping by. Thanks, Ian. Demand Gen Visionaries is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com, a conversational marketing company that's on a mission to transform the way B2B companies sell. Go to Qualified.com to learn more. <laughs>